build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. How do you do what you do? How do you find these stories? Do you need to go to journalism school? Out of all the questions I get from listeners, these three are the most common and the hardest for me to answer. Let's see, I flipped through some old emails here, and, and to one person I wrote, just do it, like a Michael Jordan or something. And in, and in this email, I dropped this little insightful nugget. Be passionate about what you love. I sound like an asshole. Maybe the closest I've come to providing a succinct answer is... You have to be curious. Chasing stories, it's a little like wondering what lies on the other side of an unmarked pass, or wondering what's just around the next bend. The more curious we are, the easier it is to be swallowed whole. What did my lover say? So for a while now, I've been looking for a story, one that might help me answer those questions without sounding like a total butt. It starts with a story that you might remember. Now to the mountains of Pakistan. There was menace even in K2's perfect weather. Well, the Pakistani army uh, helicopter, meanwhile, is said to have airlifted a frostbitten Italian climber, believed to be the last Italian survivor. Marco Confortola was rescued from K2. Eleven other climbers died trying to conquer the world's the second start of the latest peak. tragic climb, according to... An ice ledge suddenly sheared off the mountain face, cutting guide ropes, killing at least four climbers, and stranding the rest in a place known as the Death Zone. I was staying in a hotel and I woke up on Sunday morning, you know, I was watching kind of idly watching CNN and suddenly this like picture of K2 came up on the Sunday news morning news show. This is Freddie Wilkinson. He's a passionate climber, guide, and now a writer. He lives in North Conway, New Hampshire in a tiny one-room cabin called The Shabin. It has no running water, but there is power and of course, internet. Freddie's been fascinated by climbing lore from the world's biggest peaks since his childhood. And that fascination led to what has become a remarkable career as an alpinist, pushing new routes across the globe on lesser-known peaks. Like so many of us, he was introduced to climbing by these adventure narratives from 8,000-meter peaks. But since then, he's lost interest in those trophy peaks. The 2008 K2 disaster took the lives of 11 climbers. Oh, I, I guess I just sort of had this sinking feeling... Like, here we go again. Four days after that, you know, there was a, a big story on the uh, front page of the New York Times about what had happened on K2. And, and when that came out, you know, I knew it was going to be a big deal and, and people were talking about it and it was going to have a, um, you know, an impact on my sport. In our community and the general public, it immediately called to mind the 1996 tragedy on Everest and John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. 
Worldwide, it captured headlines, and it became a favorite talking point for pundits during a slow news cycle. I tuned out immediately. In part because the BS was getting flung about, but I also don't really watch TV. And also, what, what happens in the Himalaya, it seems to have so little to do with how I view our community. Up there, the Brotherhood seems broken. At least that's how I felt. And the news of abandoned climbers and chaos pouring in only strengthened that cynicism. But something about it took a hold of Freddy. He had never climbed K2 and wasn't terribly interested in climbing that type of peak. For lack of a better explanation, something about the whole thing pissed him off. The details were missing or horribly out of focus, and yet we had already reached a conclusion. Freddy just got curious. What really happened up there? Today, we bring you The Accidental Journalist, the story of how a young climber, a guy who lives in a place called the Shabin, started asking questions, stood up for his sport and community, and ultimately shed a little light on one of the darkest moments in mountaineering history. You don't need a press pass to be a journalist, just a little New England can-do spirit and a curiosity that won't rest. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. K2 may be the penultimate peak. 8,611 meters, it's 200 meters smaller in stature than Everest, but in reputation, K2 caps Everest in ferocity. It's steep. On Everest, the unlucky tend to bump into the human body's physiological limitations. They die of cerebral or pulmonary edema. Altitude kills them. On K2, it's a different story. On K2, the majority of the fatalities are actually traumatic accidents, um, avalanches and falls. One little mistake, potentially a, a, a trip on the crampons, a you know, whatever, drop an ice axe and and you can really be in trouble at a moment's notice. And because of this, K2 is ripe with legend. When, When you study the history of K2, it really has this, um, you know, unique and terrible, um, sort of legacy of taking teams of climbers, and putting them in situations where individuals are forced to just make awful decisions about sticking with the group to to you know help each other or going and, and just trying to save their own lives be it somebody's sick somebody's lost In 1953, the same year Hillary climbed Everest, a storm pinned a team of American climbers led by Dr. Charlie Houston at 25,000 feet. Altitude incapacitated one of the eight climbers. They made the collective decision that they would not leave him behind. They swaddled him in sleeping bags, sedated him with morphine, and began the arduous and dangerous task of lowering their stricken comrade down the face. During the descent, one of the climbers slipped, pulling his partner, whose rope entangled another set of partners, until... Everybody was tangled in each other and falling. Pete Schoening executed a remarkable and lucky feat. With his ice axe wedged between a snow slope and a frozen boulder, he managed to arrest all six climbers. A nightmare was averted. 
in mountaineering parlance, the moment simply became known as the belay. And the story would live on as a beacon of what partners can do when they stick together. Houston would later write, We entered the mountain as strangers, but we left as brothers. You know, mountaineering tragedies are a constant. They happened, you know, in the 19th century in Europe. They happened, you know, in the, the 1930s um, during the you know period of the when the 8,000 meter peaks were first being explored. There were men were being lost left and right. But but those tragedies, society just didn't hesitate to heroicize their endeavors. And somewhere along the way, though, something changed in our broader culture. You see this shift every time something goes wrong in the wilderness, whether it's climbers on Mount Hood or, or teenagers lost in the woods. The public loves these stories, but they also love to criticize, to cast blame. What of attraction the romanticized take of climbers as selfless conquerors of the Earth's hardest-to-reach places was lost long ago. There was a profound pessimism that was being expressed, not, you know, with exceptions, but for the most part, everybody, uh, commentators, people, you know, writing comments to news articles, people talking on the internet, everybody was saying, well, what a stupid waste. You know, what struck me, and it's, it's a phrase I use in the book, was just how the story was being told is that it was a, it was a tragedy with no heroes. After that initial accident on August 2nd, the news poured in from the mountain to the world abroad. Information moved quicker than it had in the 1990s. Expedition blogs posted hourly updates, and adventure websites like explorersweb.com stepped in to cover the events as they unfolded. Climbers carried satellite phones and were able to call back home to family and reporters. There were a lot of perspectives. But in the days following the accident, it was hard to step back and see the broader picture of facts. Whatever was happening on the mountain was surely chaotic, but the news stories, pieced together from various reports, were even more so. Good journalism takes time, and in this new information age, time is the rarest commodity. Over the week, the basic details emerged. On August 1st, about two dozen climbers left high camp, each expedition on the mountain lent their strongest climber to the lead party, which would fix the ropes on the exposed, narrow couloir capped by a hanging ice field. It's known as the bottleneck couloir. Other climbers would follow up through this dangerous section. Various parties lent gear and rope, but there were delays and the schedule was thrown off. In mid-morning, a Serbian climber at the bottom of the couloir fell to his death. A Pakistani climber fell trying to recover the body, but by that time those ahead were already hours away and unaware. It was already a disastrous day. Eleven climbers summited. On the descent, darkness fell. Unbeknownst to, unknown to them at the time, a section of Serac had broken loose and fallen down the bottleneck couloir underneath them. And so essentially they had, they had climbed up to the summit. And while they were up there, this avalanche occurred sort of like a like a trap door closing behind them. Eight climbers spent the night in the open above the bottleneck. Only three of those climbers would survive. Beyond that, the details were missing. 
On August 10th, the New York Times published an opinion piece by historian Maurice Iserman on the downfall of modern climbing. It referenced Schoening's Belay and Houston's famous quote on the Brotherhood, but concluded that in modern times, the Brotherhood, it was dead. On those high peaks, it was every man for himself. Bullshit. You know, who are they to, you know, run, you know, a, a piece just, you know, making those kinds of judgments before the real facts of what happened on K2 had even been brought out? I don't know. I'll, I'll admit, you know, something about it kind of pissed me off. Didn't jibe with what what I felt, the, you know, the climbing community felt and, you know, other val- my personal values. And so I, I kind of started investigating what had happened and and really trying to ask questions about was it all every man for himself up there or were there acts of selflessness and people sort of staying true to sort of, you know, what I consider the true mountaineering ethos and maybe those stories just weren't being reported. Freddie would had a few stories published in Climbing Mags, but he had no training as a journalist. He was just passionate and curious. The first thing he noticed is that many of the stories referred to the Western climbers by name, but the Pakistani and Sherpas on the peak were simply referred to as high-altitude porters or climbing Sherpas, not by name. So Freddie started emailing friends and acquaintances and poring over posts from various sites to see exactly who was on the mountain, and pretty soon he had a couple of names. In no time, he had the email addresses for Cheering Dorje and Pemba Gelgen. And so I immediately said... Those are the guys I want to talk to. Those are the guys who, who probably have, you know, the real dirt on what happened. He began firing off emails. I, I was amazed in some respects how, how easy it was. And yeah, especially uh, two of the Sherpas, Shearing Dorje and, and Pemba Galgen, got back to me, you know, within hours. And it was like, wow, amazing. You know, pretty quickly I realized that there was a whole side to the story that that wasn't being told. Two survivors, Marker Confectola and Wilka Van Rosen, were the most vocal and provided the vast majority of quotes and vague details. There was a much deeper story on K2, and it lay in the stories of the Sherpa. There had been rescue attempts. In fact, several of those among the dead had actually been a part of a rescue team. But this had gotten lost in the shuffle of facts. It took sort of a, a, a spark of curiosity to contact, you know, these guys and just kind of ask them a few questions. And then the answers they gave me it was like pouring gasoline on that. Freddie was already scheduled to head to Nepal for a pre-planned expedition to another region. I'm emailing with these guys anyway, you know, the least I can do is, you know, meet up with them and, you know, buy them a beer and be able to shake their hands in person. He talked to the editors at Rock and Ice and filled them in. They committed to a story and Freddie was headed for Kathmandu. And whether he knew it or not, he had just become a journalist. on something that, that was genuine and, and different from what I had already read and, and researched about it, it was, um, it was exhilarating. That feeling, it's not all that different from climbing, from being tethered to something so much bigger than you are. You take one step, 
and then the next, and pretty soon, you've got a story. In Kathmandu, Freddy met up with Cheering, who was immediately outgoing. Pemba was quieter, but Freddy had time, which was key. He had dinner with Pemba and his wife and daughter. They went sport climbing outside the city. Both Sherpas answered his questions and painted their own vision of the accident. Pretty soon, Freddy was developing quite a different view of the events. This wasn't a tragedy with no heroes. The most glaring assumption many of the early reports made was that the Sherpas had all been working. In fact, Pemba and Cheering had just been there as climbers with their own distinct goals. Technically, there were no guided expeditions on the mountain in 2008. Pemba had come to climb with his very close friend, Jared McDonald, an Irish mountaineer. They were both part of a Dutch expedition. Slowly, Freddie pieced together the events of August 1st and 2nd, and upon returning to the States, authored a cover article for Rock and Ice that illuminated the acts of Pemba and Chering. Chering had tethered himself to another Sherpa, Pasang Lama, who had lost his ice axe and guided his friend down through the darkness. Pemba had worked tirelessly to find his missing teammate, Wilco, who, snow-blinded, had strayed from the proper route. Later that year, Pemba would be awarded the Adventure of the Year by National Geographic Adventure magazine. Freddy thought he had figured out the best he could, but what happened higher on the mountain still remained a mystery. When the Rock and Ice article came out, Freddie, who had been blogging for the Huffington Post, compiled a distilled version of, of his article for the Huffington Post, hailing the heroism of the Sherpas. And a day later, a comment appeared. Obvious from the writing that there was a really powerful, um, you know, sense of loss and human experience and, you know, powerful emotion was, was there. Freddie recognized that it could only be Annie Starkey, Jared McDonald's partner. It was clear from the comment that she had her own story to tell. Freddie hadn't gotten it totally right. Nobody had. It was terrifying. To whom do I, you know, owe my best efforts? And, you know, my Rock and Ice article was was pretty good, but it wasn't the complete story. And, you know, should I just let that sit or keep going and, you know, really try to make this the, you know, the best chronicle and the best story I can. You know, one of the most interesting things about this story um, is how Annie and Jared McDonald's family, his brother and his sisters, brother-in-law and um, and his mom, you know, really were engaged the media in different ways to say, the story you're telling doesn't jibe with what we know. And, and to me, that journey they went through was fascinating, but also important and worth telling, as well as what happened on the mountain. Where had Jared been in all of this? Freddie kept digging. What had begun as an article was now turning into a book. As Pemba had been searching for his lost teammate Wilco much lower on the mountain, there had been another rescue attempt at the bottleneck. Guided by Annie and the McDonald family, Freddie started re-examining the evidence. There was one big question mark. 
Remember the night of August 1st. Eight climbers bivvied above the bottleneck, unaware that the fixed lines, swift retreat, were missing. In the morning, the day revealed an ugly scenario. As Jared, Marco, and Wilco began descending, they found a team of two Koreans and a Pakistani high-altitude porter, Jumik Bote, pinned to the mountains by their own ropes. They were still alive, although they had suffered a fall and they were badly tangled in a rope. And they just were faced with this horrific decision that, you know, really nobody would want to be faced with in in their career as a climber, which is, you know, I'm at the limit of my own abilities. And yet, you know, here are these people, you know, still alive in dire straits. How much can I give to to stop and, and help them? Snowblind, Wilco descended, but offered a spare set of gloves to one of the Koreans. Jared and Marco stayed to help. A rescue was on the way, they were told, but nothing was guaranteed. Together, they they started to try to uh, free them from this uh, tangled rope they were in. For three hours, the duo worked to extricate the climbers, but slowly, with energy reserves already at dangerous lows, Marco made a decision. Then, in almost every article published in the aftermath, Jared simply vanishes from the events. Marco said that, um, you know, he felt he had reached his limit. He was exhausted from from working with them and realized he had to continue down um, to preserve his own life. Marco went down and um, Jared stayed in the vicinity of the the, uh, Koreans and and Jumik. Marco and Jared never discussed the decision face-to-face. They were dozens of meters apart. And they knew that below... Big Pasang, a Sherpa employed by the Koreans, was moving upward to assist. We don't, we'll never know all, everything that happened after Marco left them um, because, because sadly none of them made it. Annie, like Freddie, had poured over all the raw data and articles and was convinced that Jared gave up his life to save the Koreans and that he had come incredibly close to doing so. I, I don't want to speak for her, um, but it, it was my sense that, um, you know, that they were feeling pretty discouraged at, at just that the story wasn't really being told very well. Freddie went back to work, starting again with the facts. First, the Koreans were tangled and trapped. Marco left. From below, a small rescued party led by Big Pasang was moving upward. They would later radio that they had found Marco unconscious in the snow beneath the bottleneck and got him moving again. Marco was the last to make it down alive. Hours later, Big Pasang would radio that they had met the Koreans at the top of the bottleneck and returning back down the Kular. Shortly afterwards, the Serac would once again avalanche into the bottleneck Kular, taking everyone with it. Annie's point was clear. How did the Koreans go from being trapped to walking? What, what I feel extremely confident reporting is that somehow they became freed. And, and the, these poor guys who were stuck in their ropes did get a final chance to try to work down the mountain. Jared, who, who was up there and, and had for some reason refused to, to leave them, was, was still w- working on, on the fixed ropes and performing this um, sort of technical rescue scenario called transferring the load to add slack into the system. And it, it just by, you know, having agonized over it for two years, um, 
Man, that's that's what I think happened. Freddie examined pictures from the Dutch expedition, which lays out each of the party's place on the face before weather obscures the events. Cross-referencing the photo's timestamp with various radio transmissions, Freddie was coming closer to an answer. But he still had doubts whether Jared had been able to free the Koreans. He'd even expressed them to Annie. The facts could only take him so far. And uh, so she had to say to me, like, what kind of a story are you writing here, Fred? Are you going to make it? What do you believe? That, that was a really um, profound moment. Two years had passed. Freddie had dedicated his free time, his work time, to people whom he would never get to meet. To a mountain he had no intention of climbing. For what? Annie was right. Freddie had done his homework. Now he needed to figure out what he believed in. When you put pen to paper and start writing nonfiction, it matters. Whether you are covering Iraq, the Gulf oil spill, the K2 disasters, facts matter. But it's how you navigate through opinion and fact that defines a journalist. If you do a sloppy job, you hurt everyone. Freddie had taken on a responsibility to do his best, to follow his moral compass, the same way you would in life, the same way you would in the mountains. There is no school that can teach that. Ultimately, there isn't one singular truth to what happened on K2 two years ago. And, and that really, that's why, that's why I named the book One Mountain Thousand Summits. So, so what you're saying is that, that you had to make a leap, that in the end, you had to decide whether you believed in Jared, to, to whether you believed that, that the mountaineering ethos isn't broken. How we create that story says as much about ourselves as it does about the physical evidence at hand. At the end, I... Um, you know, I, I wanted to write an optimistic story. Freddie, why do you think you stuck with this? I mean, sure, there was, there was that moment where you decided to act, to start asking questions, but, but two years, I mean, that's a lot of time. Looking back now, what do you think made you write this book? Telling stories and cherishing them and, you know, using them as, um, um, vehicles to, to learn, you know, both as, as climbers, as people, um, is a fundamental part of who we are. I, I hope every people go out and, and read my book and I hope it makes them think and I, and I hope it makes them think critically. And even if they don't, agree with with everything I say. Everybody just should remember that those were real people who were lost and and they had real families and, and loved ones and brothers and sisters. It's easy as a adventure consumer to dehumanize the real depths of, of these kinds of um, stories just because it is engaging and it is fascinating. And in one mountain, thousand summits, Freddy succeeded. His hard work, his curiosity evolved into a deeply human, incredibly insightful look into not just the K2 disaster, but the lives of the climbers, Western and Sherpa alike, into our shared mountain culture. Ultimately, it asked the question, what would you do? Faced with three tangled climbers, people you barely knew, would you help as Jared did? 
Would you risk your life to help another? It's an important question to ask yourself, even if you never plan on setting foot in the Himalaya. I'm guessing that, that somewhere along the lines, Freddie, you, you must have asked that question, you know, what, what would I have done? Do you think you would have made the choice that, that Jared did? I, I sure would like to think so. But I also, you know, I also, um, as I say in the book, you, you can never know until you've been there. Freddie's book, One Mountain, Thousand Summits, from New American Library, arrives on shelves July 6th. Check it out. It's part mystery, part historical perspective on adventure, and compelling the whole way through. For you East Coasters out there, Freddie's going to bark on a book tour, so keep an eye out for him. Music today by Glitch Mob and Wolf Parade, whose upcoming album, Expo 86, comes out next week. I'm pumped for it. I've had a listen, and it's good. Support for the show comes from Kuat Racks, Building a Better Bike Rack. Friend them on Facebook for contests and giveaways or visit kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. The Diaries owes so much to Patagonia. Without them, the Diaries wouldn't be here today. This is a company that has always looked to innovate and support innovation by helping independent voices and grassroots organizations. Visit them online at patagonia.com or check out their blog, thecleanestline.com. It's my favorite way to procrastinate. That was Freddie Wilkinson. I'm Fitzgerald Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.